You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Terry Riley from the sermon series, The Beatitudes, Jesus' Talk on the Hill. For more info, please visit creekside.org. Hey, good morning, everybody. How you doing? It's good to see y'all. Good, thank you, three. I, uh, I appreciate that. It's always nice to be seen. It means something, right? Right, right, right. We're going to start a new series today, Talk uh, on, the, on the Big Hill. And it's really, we're going to talk from the Sermon on the Mount that uh, Jesus gave. Probably the greatest sermon of all time. Uh, we're going to look at it. Uh, we're going to talk about it for a number of weeks. It's kind of like the crown jewel. Uh, it's really like the Mount Everest of the New Testament. It's like the Christian manifesto, the Magna Carta of Jesus the King, because it really talks about the things of the kingdom. So we're going we're gonna to look at that. I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. Uh, as you know, we're still uh, way down and uh, doing one service, but uh, we still need people that are going to be able to serve here on a Sunday morning. And if, and if you'd be able to serve and uh, greet people and welcome people, we would sure appreciate that. Just if you would, uh, call the church office and let us know, because we still have just a high number of people that are staying home. And uh, we honor that and understand uh, the reasons why uh, they'd be doing that. But we still need people here to serve. And so if you'd be willing to do that at some point and in some way, please call the church office to let us know. Well, come to the Gospel of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. Matthew is written by Matthew, the disciple of Jesus. And it's really focused, each gospel has a focus that it's being written to. Uh, Matthew happens to be focused on the Jews and relating to the Jewish people. First four chapters focus on preparing for the king, preparing for Jesus' arrival and his come. And then chapters 5 through 7 really lay out principles for Jesus' kingdom, what it's going to look like, what it means to be blessed, what it means to live a successful life, what it means to live spiritually. It's totally antithetical to the standards of our culture today. Interestingly enough, it's God's way, and that's what matters. Do you ever think about success? Do you ever think about what it is, how you define it, what it really looks like? Have you ever wondered if you look in the mirror and you go, I'm a success? I mean, what does that look like? What does it entail? Our world basically says it has to do with our accomplishments and with our position. Our upward mobility, our income, our portfolio. How is that looking? That shows if you're a success. How big is your home? Do you have a following? How many followers on Twitter do you have? See, that's kind of all of those, and there's so many others, but a lot of those are like criteria for the world's definition of success. Are the things in this world system, are they bad? Uh, no, I don't think so. Not all. But what's your focus? Uh, one definition of success is people's sense of value and self-esteem that are tied to the accomplishments of something attained. Is that it? I've attained something? I have something? Is that the focus? Is that really the definition of what it means to be successful? 
I've been thinking about this and reflecting on it because I'm, I'm writing about it in kind of some different ways. I'm, uh, over my years here, I'm just kind of doing kind of an overview of what God's done, what I've seen in people, what I've learned about people. Uh, I was also given a couple of books that are from fathers to son. And it has in it just a litany, a whole bunch of questions. And so I've got to write these questions out that answer to my sons the questions. Could, could we uh, fix my sound just a little? I'm getting a little feedback. Uh, but it's books that ask a bunch of questions that a dad writes to his son. And some of them have to do with, well, what is success? What does it look like? How did I see myself ex- successful? And then I'm writing some lessons in journals for my two grandsons. Kind of a little historical overview of their life with grandpa. And this has all caused me to pause to consider. What do I want them to understand about success and what a successful life looks like? Does it shift over the years? It sure has for me. It looks a lot different for me at my present age than it did when I was 30 and 40, probably even 50. What is being successful? I think Jesus in this passage especially the Beatitudes that we're going to look for for the next weeks, is where he really defines it. Values. He says, I want you to participate. I want you to embrace and live out the values of my kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at. What are values? Well, it's really, it's a person's principles of standards of behavior. One's judgment of what is important in life. See, is a value climbing the ladder of success? Or is it simply producing? Are you productive? Are you always giving out? Does that make you a success? It's important because your values will ultimately determine who you will become in time and over time. As Christ followers, we establish our values. What's important in our lives? What we're committed to in our lives? To the teachings of Jesus. And that's why I want to look at these Beatitudes. They go beyond these pithy little principles to really, they, they, they speak to who we're to become. Because here's the thing, loved ones, whether you have them or state them or not, your values, you make and choose your values, and then your values are going to make you. And whose values are you going to follow? You're going to follow the world's? You're going to follow Jesus's. And through revealing these teachings, I think I understand better what values and success really look like for me in life. The first thing is sharing all my life with God, where I'm just open. I'm an open book. That I acquire, number two, I acquire God's values for myself. And number three, I live by faith because I believe in Jesus. I love what Pastor John Piper said. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And the problem that I find sometimes looking for success by the world standard or how the world would define it, the problem with that is there's not always a whole lot of satisfaction. The the Lord desires that each of us, that this would happen in our lives where we are simply so satisfied in him that we're bringing him glory. And you acquire, and the best way to do this, friends, is simply to acquire and to live out his values day in and day out. This takes a lot of time. This takes time to capture because we are so enraptured with the success of the world, aren't we? I mean, think about it. We, you know, we want to get up, we want to get to work, we want to be there on time, which is uh, obviously a very good thing. But we get caught up. Say you're in a traffic jam. 
And you begin to ride that iron horse wagon of yours. And pretty soon everyone's crowding in. And I mean, just think of going to, you know, going toward Oakland and how people are just cutting and coming in. And all of a sudden you start riding that iron horse and trying to cut in and get in. And you're crowding out and crowding in. And you're speeding up and you're honking. And maybe you're doing some other things. (laughs) Just like everyone else. But think about this. But when you're sharing your whole life with Jesus, when his values really begin to eclipse your personal values, your attention can shift from blowing your horn. Your attention can shift from getting angry. Your attention can shift from impatience and pressing ahead to something else. What if you're going down 680 South and you're headed toward Walnut Creek? And you get all that traffic and all of a sudden you just take a deep breath and you look to your left. Wow, there's Mount Diablo. How beautiful. And pretty soon you're admiring the the creation. But then quickly, when you have God's values and you're giving your whole life to him, you're living out of his values, out of his life, what he considers success. You move from seeing the creation to saying, Oh, I can sense the presence of the creator. See, isn't it true that our focus, well, for me, I'll say me, so often my focus in my whole life has been the destination, getting there in good time. But wait. What if I have a good time getting there and that becomes part of it? Isn't it true that we can become so consumed with arriving that we miss the journey and we miss God moments along the way? We miss God's presence in the everyday of what is taking place in our life. And we deliver and we produce and we take care of everything. But what if we slowed down? What if we understood what real success was? I'm convinced, loved ones, that that can deliver us from the mundane existence that so many of us catch ourselves and find ourselves in trying to be successful in life. See, this creator God, he can transform the traffic jam. He can can transform the line at the post office at the grocery store, a missed appointment. He can turn them into God moments. And, and, And I think for me, maybe for you, that's part of what I want to see in my life is that I'm sharing all my life with God, not just the Sunday morning part. Dr. Jennifer James in her book, Success is the Quality of Your Journey, says this, put more time in things with no discernible score. Have friendships with people outside your competitive sphere. Walk in the woods, your sphere. Walk in the woods, read novels, listen to music, meditate, laugh loudly, play with children and animals. 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul writes, he says, And we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The word work there has to do with common tasks, the usual duties and expectations of life. But Paul is saying there's something that's transcendent that can happen that can take place when God's presence is in those times. Those common events and tasks by faith can begin to give a sense of the eternal that goes beyond 
the daily mundane of what we face. When you begin to sense that and see that and understand God's working in you, we'll get to see his work in the midst of our work. We move our success from simply doing to becoming. Because most of us see success as everything that we do, everything that we accomplish, instead of who we are being and who we're becoming with God. See, life is more than win and lose from God's perspective. I'm a person that can kind of speak to that because I've lived a great portion of my life win or lose. I'm either a winner or I'm a loser. If you'll excuse the shallow, shallow, shallow example because I didn't want to step on anybody's toes, so I thought I would try and do something kind of light and maybe funny, but did you notice my bling? Anybody notice that? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty nice, huh? Only two people in the Creekside Kingdom have this ring. It's representative of being the overall champion in, one of, in our four fantasy football leagues. <laughs> Go for the ring. Everybody wants one, but not everyone, only two have them. Now, here's the point. It's shallow, I know. I could use other examples, but I may offend people, so I wanted to go with something that would not be offensive. I have one. Do you know what I play for now? Another one. (laughs) Do you know what I'm going to play for next year? Another one. Because now you know what? I've had this for two years, and it's kind of like big whoopee ding. The only thing fun about it is when I can wear it with the other guys around, which is once a year. And the rest of the time, it's like, big deal. I might as well throw it away, but I won't. Um, (laughs) but, But here's the point. It really has very little meaning to me. And that's the problem with the world's success, is you acquire, you get, and you gain. But in the long run, all you have is you've acquired and you've gained. The fallacy of world success, loved ones, is you get the prize, whatever it is you want. Paul said in Philippians 3.14, I press upward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Hear me, hear me, hear me. Applause for accomplishment is not wrong. Material blessings for what you've accomplished and done is not wrong. Achievement is not wrong. But in the midst of whatever you're doing, you don't want to miss God's prize for you. You don't want to miss God's blessing upon you. You don't want to miss God's values for you which are ultimately wrapped up, as Paul would say in Philippians 3, in knowing him and becoming like him and assuming and taking on the values of the kingdom. Jesus is going to utter nine brief statements describing people that he called blessed. And in Christian parlance, I think that we would say that most people that are blessed are successful. And if Jesus says that, uh, just sign me up. That's what I want. Uh, These statements, they're called be attitudes. So they're the attitudes and the values that are to be in the Christ follower. They're not abstract ideas or descriptions. They're descriptions of people, of how we on our journey towards God can achieve the ultimate success. People like you and me. 
We're going to look at these again for the next few weeks. And we want to see these values and say, Lord, what would you say to me about them becoming part of my life? So let's pick it up in chapter 5 of Matthew, the first few verses. I'm going to read through them all, but I'm just doing the introduction and kind of getting us into them next week. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Let me give you some homework. Read these verses every day this week. And just say, Lord, what, is it, what, what does this mean? To, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. After Just begin to kind of do a daily thought process on them. Let them become part of your thinking and process to start your day as we begin to talk about them. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when, this, when, he, when Jesus saw the crowds, I love that, because as you go through the Gospels, it's always talking how Jesus saw the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then Jesus kind of does an addendum, and he says, you are blessed. I didn't want to read this. Well, I will. Jesus said it. It's true. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. A blessing? Oh, and by the way, and be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Those are the values that Jesus challenges us with. I want us to see just a few things here. First of all, the summons from the summit. Jesus climbs up on a hill and he sits down. In Jewish culture, if you were teaching, you would sit down. If you were preaching, you would stand up. So Jesus is sitting down here and he's overlooking and he's seeing all these people. And what he's doing is, is he's going to speak to them and he's going to teach them. He's going to give them incredible truth about the values of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to live in the lifestyle of the kingdom? Because we're going to talk about the values in the first uh, uh, in nine verses there. And then we're going to talk about what are, the, what are the lifestyle? How do people in the kingdom live according to Jesus? So Jesus gives this, this summons to the summit. Who shows up? Well, the crowd. At the end of chapter 4, you're going to see there's this mob. They've traveled from all over regions around there. Many of them have traveled up to 100 miles to hear Jesus and to see Jesus in that day. I mean, Jesus had the crowds flocking to him. I mean, he was like a rock star in that day. I mean, if you could go to to Galilee and Jerusalem in that area, there'd be just people following him. Why is that? Well, because in chapter 4, it says he was healing the sick. He was uh, relieving people of demon possession. He was feeding the hungry. He was speaking truth like nobody had ever spoken. He had some serious seekers in this mob, in this group. Uh, But he also had some looky-loos. It's kind of like people today, you know, that want the celebrity sightings. Oh, man, I'm going to go to L.A. Maybe I'll see somebody. I've heard about them. Oh, they hang out here, so they go. Or the the spiritual paparazzi, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, they show up. 
So they come. And they listen to Jesus. It's kind of like today. You got the people that are really serious about Jesus. And what do they do? They listen. They take on to it. But you know, sometimes he says things that we don't understand very well. And so we just kind of go, eh, okay, whatever, move on. You see this throughout the Gospels that people would do that. Or as long as things were going their way, things were happening. In John chapter 6, we see Jesus where he feeds the 5,000, and he gives them some cold cuts, and he gives them some meat, and he makes these really great kosher sandwiches for these people, and they pass it out, and this is like miraculous, this is great, and they receive it, and they eat it, and they go, oh yeah, well, good teaching, Jesus, jump, 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 and then the next day, he comes back, and he starts teaching again, and they're wondering, where are the cold cuts? Where is the sandwiches? Where are the good, where's the good food? And Jesus is trying to teach. And finally, people, he, he doesn't feed them, so what do they do? They begin to walk away. And that's oftentimes what the crowd does. They have high expectations, but there's kind of a low response factor. You've got the disciples here it mentions. Specifically, a, a disciple is simply a follower. It's a learner, a disciple, a mathetes. It just means that they're a follower, a learner of Jesus. Not just about what he could do. They weren't into, I mean, they loved seeing the miracles and everything, and that was probably part of the attraction. But they saw him as the potential, the possible Messiah. They saw him as the rabbi, the one who came for them. And, and, and when they didn't understand a parable or something, you would see them in the, in the Gospels and the rest of the Gospels. They would say, Jesus, you know, everybody's left, but we're scratching our head on this one. Could you kind of explain it? And Jesus would say, yeah, I wanted to find out who the, the followers were, who the disciples were. And he would explain it to them. Those are the ones that are showing up as well. And then there's Jesus. He calls people to follow him. You watch Jesus. He teaches and he uses his teachings to thin the crowd. That's why he spoke in parables. But the disciples hung around. See, Jesus had this powerful presence, but he wasn't overpowering. He sat down so he was approachable. He was touchable. He didn't come to rail on and to rant against or use emotionalism to try and get people to come and to follow him. He logically, he systematically taught the most powerful and penetrating teachings of the kingdom in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So why does Jesus call him to the summit? Well, people get busy. People are pursuing success. People's values are being busy. And so Jesus calls these people out of their busyness and their pressing times and their difficult times. And he says, what I'd like for you to do is just to pull back a little bit. Go full flaps. Let go of the urgence and begin to lean into some of the important things. And he gives some, some summit principles here. Number one, the summit is a place of perspective. Have you ever noticed the higher you go, the smaller things become under you? problems and cares that you have here, the summit gives you perspective above them. That's why so many people love to go to the mountains. They can get away. They can think differently. They can begin to look at things from a different perspective. I love flying. You get up above the clouds. It doesn't matter what's happening down here, does it? Everything is so small. The summit is a place of permanence in a world of transition. Having lived here now for 
a number of years, I see houses growing and being built. I see freeways changing. You see it. We all see all these different things. But you know what? Mount Diablo's never changed. It's sure. It's there. It's a place where people can go, get perspective. It's also a place of personal encounter. You see in the Gospels that Jesus would often get away with his disciples to mountains and mountain summits. And when you get away to those, it's not about what you encounter. It's about who you encounter when you go there. Summits are clear. They're higher places. They give perspective. But it's always about the God moments there. It's about meeting with his majesty. It's where you turn your back on the noise around you and you seek the voice of God from above. It's where we begin to receive our marching orders for the next season of our life. It's also a place of purpose and priority. It's where you retreat vertically so that you can advance. Uh, you retreat vertically so you can advance horizontally. When you receive the summons to the summit, go. When you hear the Lord speak to you, crawl, climb, do whatever, but get away for a time to gain perspective because it's where Jesus will reveal himself to you and the things that he has for you and the things that he wants to do and wants to give direction in your life. A number of years ago, I missed a wedding rehearsal. I had prior responsibilities, but I had a secondary role in the wedding, so I didn't have to be there. But it was kind of a higher liturgical kind of wedding. So it wasn't, you know, where I just walk out and start the wedding. It was processional and all of these things. So I met with the pastor who was leading it beforehand. I said, you know, what do you want me to do? And he says, well, you're going to need to do this and that and this here. But I can't give you all the directives here because there's too many. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to follow behind you and you're just going to hear my voice. And I'm going to say, take a ride on the stairs, go to the third chair or whatever. So as we're going, this whole big, massive cathedral is there, and there's people, and this wedding, we're going through it. And as we're walking, all I hear is this kind of low voice that says, get up to the stage, take a right. Once you're up the stage, go to the third chair. Keep standing, because we're going to do some things. It was just this real small, faint voice. But I would have never made it. I would have been totally embarrassed. I would have been completely out of place without that voice. See, loved ones, when, you, when God calls us to the summit, this is what it's about. It's where he wants to give direction. He wants to adjust and maybe recalibrate some of the values and how you are seeing life. And that's what we're going to do because the beatitudes that he talks about, each beatitude begins with the word blessed. Blessed is the, is the word, it's makarios. It means happy, joyful, fortunate, blissful. How many could go for those four things today, right now? Absolutely. The, the fullest, the clearest meaning of it, of the word has to do with this inward contentedness that is not affected by the outward circumstances. That's kind of timely for where we are, isn't it? A lot of people want to discount them as being irrelevant, antiquated. Now, we don't need these. I and mean, we're, we're 21st century people. We believe in blessed are the rich. Blessed are the noble. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the glamorous. Blessed are the macho. Blessed are the famous. Blessed are the strong. But Jesus' message that we're going to read about is not carved from the world's standards. His pathway to happiness and fulfillment and blessing, it's totally different because they're based on kingdom, his values, not the world's. Poor in spirit. 
We're simply beggars recognizing we have need. Those blessed are those who mourn. We're in a group. We come together on a morning like this, and it's really Sinners Anonymous. Good morning, I'm a sinner. And we mourn that. The meek. We surrender to God's control and his leading. We hunger and thirst. So thankful for the righteousness that God has given us. We just, we want more of it. The merciful. We are winners of the Super Bowl lotto. And we're going to go pay and give money to our enemies. We're going to bless them. The pure in heart. We have a spiritual outlook and vision. The peacemakers, we are bridge builders because of a wooden cross, and we use that cross to build bridges. Blessed are the persecuted. We can endure injustice and trust that God, our God, has the final word when all is said and done. That's what we're going to talk about. These values, loved ones, hear me, they come through righteousness, not resolution. You don't resolve to become poor in spirit. Most of us already are. It's not a personal assignment where we work it out, but it's a permission that has been granted to us by God's spirit to receive them as we walk in them and we begin to cooperate with Jesus' work within us. That's what Philippians 2 says. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. Not working for your salvation, but that you're working out what God's already been doing inside of you with deep reverence and fear. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what he pleases you to do. You don't resolve to do these things, loved ones. It's worked into us as we submit to God's work and understand that it's his power and his relationship. Our values then become changed at two levels. The first level is in our heart, a changed heart. Our values become different because our heart is different. We're getting in step and in process with what God is rebuilding in our lives. But after the internal change of our heart, there's an external behavior that changes. And it usually takes place when there's a collision between the old and the new values. Have you ever seen that? If you've lived with Jesus for very long, it happens quite frequently. Oh, this is what I would usually do. But oh, this is what the kingdom, this is a value of the kingdom. This is what I'm going to do now. And there's this collision of values from the past to the present that God seems to arrange and forces us into these choices. I believe this is really important for us now because I believe this is what's happening to the church universal. We've got values that are colliding all over America. And you've got values that are colliding in the church. And some of you, if you're paying attention, you've got values colliding in your life. And you're trying to figure it out and work out what's it going to look like. It can be really, when those values start colliding, it can be frustrating and traumatic. But God will lead you. God will lead us. How do we get these things integrated in our life? Two things, we're done. We become weaned from ourselves. Psalm 131 verse 2 says, Instead, I have calmed and quieted myself. Yes, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I no longer cry out and, and fuss and fight 
for what I want. The first beatitude is poor in spirit. When one is poor in spirit, they begin to lose a preoccupation with self because they know who they are. They know they're simply a beggar begging for bread. Someone noted in our 20s, we worry about what everybody thinks about us. In our 40s, we don't care what they think about us. In our 60s, we discovered they weren't really thinking about us at all. That's kind of a poor reality, but it's true. When you're poor in spirit, loved ones, the focus becomes Jesus and what pleases him. What are the values that he wants to deposit and build and grow in your life? Second thing is you take Christ on his terms, not yours. That's what these beatitudes ultimately become the foundation for everything else. Is that you take Jesus for who he is and what he wants in your life, not what you want. Does that mean you don't have any free will, you can't choose? Absolutely not. But I'm talking about the, the big issues, the big values of your life. They're built on who Jesus is and what he says. When you walk with the Lord, it's not that you try and walk with him while keeping your own little private places, your own little compartments, or your whole relationship with him is just kind of built around Sunday and the rest of the six days are built around you and your plans and your desires. It's when the Lord comes to finger something, you simply respond knowing that his values are the ultimate success for you and it's going to be best for you. He may even finger things in your life that he doesn't finger in somebody else's, which drives some of us crazy, doesn't it? There's the rich, there's the rich young ruler. Remember what he had? He had everything. He slides into Jesus and he says, what have I got to do to be saved? And Jesus said, you know something? You know the law, go do it. He goes, well, I'm doing it. He goes, okay, let me see. Uh, You probably haven't done this. So this is what I want you to do. Go sell all your goods. He was rich. He was a rich, young ruler. You know what the Bible says? It says that he frowned, his face dropped, and he walked away. It's interesting because Jesus, that's the only person he ever said to do that. Here's the deal. What's Jesus going to finger in your life? And he's going to say, we need to deal with that. We need to touch that. Because that's where you begin. That's where values collide. But it's also where values are built. And that's what Jesus is going to come to do. And we're going to pray. Because we want to have a posture of dependence and trust in him. Because you know what? We're going to find out next week. We're all a bunch of beggars. Got a problem with the homeless? Spiritually, we have a home, but we've been homeless. And I'm so thankful that Jesus comes to take care of that. Would you stand with me, please? Well, I'm excited about this study because I've already been challenged and confronted and probed and fingered and messed up with. Uh, The nice thing, or or, I don't know if it's nice, but the thing I do know is that that will continue as we go through this for me personally. And I hope that we come today with that sense of, Lord, would you just speak to me? And um, let's, let's pray and let's ask the Lord. Let's 
Say, Lord, I'm a candidate. Open the doors of my heart. Let them swing open so that I can be a part of what you want to do in me. That my value system would become your value system, not that of the world. If you just close your eyes and bow your heads for a moment. If you're here today, if you're online today, and maybe you've never responded to Jesus who calls everybody to himself. Because we're all sinners. We're all born broken. We're all beggars trying to find satisfaction in life. And Jesus says, this is the pathway. It's going to take some time, but this is the pathway. If you've never made that decision for Jesus, I challenge you, encourage you to do that today by just simply saying, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And would you come into my life? And if you're here in this congregation today, if you're online, online, you can just check the little hand there and say, I I raised my hand figuratively to say, that's me, Jesus. If you're here today and you've never done that, I encourage you just to raise your hand. I just want to pray with you. You'll not be embarrassed. You'll not be picked out or anything. But if you're here today and you've never made a commitment to Jesus, just would you raise your hand and let us know so that we can pray for you. And online, if you would do that. Is there anybody here today? Okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come in Jesus' name. We are so thankful that we have a God that brings godly values to our life and helps us understand the true, what true success is. Again, this isn't some kind of a a ballistic blasting of the good things of life. But it is the prioritizing of the purposeful living for the kingdom of God that as you bless, as you minister, as you give to us, we understand it's for a higher calling. It's not just to hoard and be hoarded unto us. It's not just to make us look good, polish our image. It's, Lord, ultimately to espouse the values and the virtues of your life to people around us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us individually, corporately in this season ahead and teach us, Lord, of what it means to be able to be successful, to be able to rest in your presence. So today, Lord, we give you thanks. And um, I pray, Lord, for this people that as we go this week, that we would take time to read these, maybe even memorize a couple of them, maybe even do a little study on them to help us understand them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your grace and your love. And we receive that today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.